0: Uh, this morning, to be honest, I think they're looking up, and because, uh, not so much because of my voice, but because of the voice of the Lord that we get to hear this morning. It's been weeks of, of studying in this book of Jeremiah, and and it's been hard, you know, I gotta admit, it's, it's been hard at times, some of the things that we've been hearing, a lot, of, a lot of disobedience, a lot of failure, a lot of judgment, these kinds of things do not prove for, um, you know, themes of of hope and joy in preaching and teaching and in your growth group studies. But it's been important. And and remember Jeremiah's call from the very beginning to to tear down and to destroy and to uproot. Because if you don't uproot, then you can't plant. And so we've had to go through this season of uprooting and and pulling out and, and ridding uh, as we've looked at the nation of Judah and their relationship with God, and we've thought about our own, so that we can make room for this, this garden of hope to emerge, this, this new turn, this new thing that God is wanting to do in our hearts and in all His people everywhere. And so uh, we're, we're just past the halfway point. We've moved, we're moving into the second half of the book of Jeremiah today. And, and as we do, Especially in these next couple of weeks, you have to remember that the book of Jeremiah does not necessarily go chronologically. It's not necessarily arranged with a lot of order. I heard one scholar talk about it It was as if the, uh, the collectors of Scripture stood at the top of a staircase with the scrolls of Jeremiah and just threw them down and went down to the bottom and picked them up and shuffled them together and said here's the book of Jeremiah. So you kind of have to remember that a little bit, there's not a lot of chronology here. But these next couple of weeks especially bring us to a a new point, a new day, a new turn where it's less about disobedience and failure and judgment and more about possibility and hope and and future and and life. um, today we get to look at perhaps the most famous passage from this book, an oft-quoted um, passage that uh, may, I mean, every time I say this verse anywhere, people are like, oh, that's my favorite verse. And uh, in fact, the Kirkmeyers wrote a song. Where are you? They wrote a song using this verse. And so it is just for, the, for, for when they dedicate their, their children. And so beautiful, and we'll get to, is it okay if I say that? We'll get to hear that Song sung again in uh, several months, so we're excited about that. Um, by way of, by way of just announcing that to the whole church. Thanks, Greg and Kristen. Um, bless you as well. Keep the Kirkmeyers in your prayers, would you, as they're expecting another child? Yeah, good stuff. What's that? You think? No way. I think Greg needs three little girls. Come on. Come on. Hey. Oh, it's good stuff. So anyway, oft quoted, oft sung, oft held onto passage of Scripture. But I want to read it in its context and hear kind of the, the larger story that surrounds this, this amazing passage of hope and, and possibility. So it's Jeremiah 29. You need to look at this one in a Bible, and I want you to open up a Bible. There should be one near you. If there's not, shame on us, but, but grab one. Have somebody pass you one. Um, there, I know there's a bunch of Bibles in this building right now, so get one in front of you. Jeremiah 29, and I'm just going to begin at the beginning, and read just the first 14 verses. But I'd love to have you look on with me, and if you don't have an NIV, you might be a little lost, but follow along anyway, and stand with me. If you would, as I read this, this uh, word of Jeremiah, which is actually the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 1, I'll read through verse 14. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Don't worry, we're going to come back and explain this a little bit. Verse 2, this was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He, Jeremiah, entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you, Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And here it comes. Let's say it together, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, and I'll keep reading, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. There's one thing that we've learned about Jeremiah, the person in the first half of this book, is that he's not afraid to speak what the Lord gives him to say. And uh, we've seen that at great personal risk, physical risk to himself, despite great emotional suffering. Remember the laments or the confessions of Jeremiah that we read, despite experiencing great social isolation. He has been faithful and over and over he has um, um, fulfilled the calling that God had given him way back in chapter one. If you want to look back there, you can, but God said things like this, go to everyone I send you and say to them everything I give you to say to them. And God said, I will be with you, do not fear. And so Jeremiah has done this over and over again. And in these first uh, 24 chapters in particular, and he'll do it a little bit more uh, in out of chronology uh, chapters still to come. He's been relentless in, in his point of bringing warning to the people of God and calling them away from their disobedience and back into a covenant relationship with their father. Where, where they would say, yes, you are our God, and we will be your people. And they've continually broken this, and continually Jeremiah has called them back into this covenant relationship with them. And yet, chapter 25, Pastor Jake reminded us a couple of weeks ago when he spoke uh, on this portion of scripture, and, and reminded us that ultimately there came a time when Jeremiah, when, when it was time to stop giving warnings. It was time to stop calling them back, and it was time to start announcing that the, 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 the opportunities for renewing the covenant were in fact over. And there would now be consequences to be faced because of their choices. I think the title of your sermon was Three Strikes and You're Out. And, uh, you know, again, just a real uplifting <laughs> title for a message. And, uh, it, but, but fitting, because not only is the World Series on right now, but because... Is the World Series on right now? Oh, but because there comes a time in baseball and in life where if you do this, this, and this, and this, and you know there are consequences and you keep doing it anyway, there comes a time when you will be out. And fitting, especially for those of us who are kind of following this story and know a little bit about what's coming up and what we're going to talk about a little bit today, because the, the consequence, the primary consequence of their disobedience would be uh, being removed from the, their homeland by the invading Babylonian army. It would mean displacement and deportation and exile into a far-off land. Uh, th- this is a difficult situation for sure, but the reality uh, that they were facing in this book. Uh, as many of you know, you can read kind of parallel to what Jeremiah the prophet was talking about in other books in the Bible. And 2 Kings gives reports on what was actually happening with the kings and with the nation of Judah while Jeremiah was prophesying. It's like they're kind of parallel accounts. And 2 Kings chapter 24 tells us that that what Jeremiah had prophesied back in chapter 25, when he had said, hey, three strikes, you're out, uh, actually That had been back in 605 B.C. Actually, that happened as the Babylonians came into Judah and into Jerusalem with full force. They had kind of been sending little raiding parties, as they're called, into Jerusalem before that point. But in 597, the Babylonians came with full force into Jerusalem and they gathered up, as it reports there in 2 Kings and a little bit here in this passage we looked at, they gathered up. All the Lots of the treasures from the temple that was there in Jerusalem, that was the, the place where the presence of God was. They gathered up a lot of the gold uh, instruments that Solomon had created. Uh, along with this stuff, they gathered up people. They gathered up officials, and they gathered up craftsmen, and they gathered up fighting men, and they gathered up about 10,000 people, all told. And in 597 began the long, hard, slow over 500-mile journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, so this wasn't just like a, you know, we're not not talking about this. This really happened. And I I put a little map here, I think. Is there a map right after that one? I don't know if you can see it or not, but this is just a map, kind of that Middle East region. And, And on the far left, you see, if you can read it, it says Jerusalem, where the red lines kind of begin. And then Babylonia, and this whole area is what the Babylonian Empire had kind of assumed but as they took the, Jer- the, the people in Jerusalem into exile, this is the pathway that they led them on. So really, most people say that as the crow flies, it's about 500 miles, and you can see that they didn't go as the crow flies. So a long journey, 10,000 of them being led into exile back to uh, Babylon. You see that? I mean, I, I just wanted to show you that because I think that brings it home a little bit that this is a very painful experience that these people were uh, uh, undergoing. All right, you can go back, Devin. The pain of the exile. I'm going to think about this a little bit, because being thrown out of their homeland, being led in a over, you know, whatever, plus 500-mile journey, um, would have been painful for at least a couple of reasons. And we need to know this before we can really appreciate the context of what Jeremiah says to them in 29. At least a couple of reasons. First, there was this purely physical reason, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago with some, with some guys that I was talking to about this, and the, the most vivid kind of description that I could think of, I, I don't know if this is totally accurate, but it made sense to me, is if you know, one day we looked out into the Pacific Ocean, and there were some Chinese warships there, and, and they just kind of said, here we are, and we're invading, we're attacking, Sadly, this isn't possibly that far from potential reality, but maybe not. Um, and, and, and so they attacked us and came into the coastland, came right here, us, us nice west coasters, easy pickings. And they said, I'd like 10,000 of you uh, to come with us. And they loaded us up on those warships, took us back to China, took us into the center of the country somewhere, dropped us off and said, You're our, here you are. This is your new home. Uh, not... A real pleasant thought, perhaps, for us to think about, right? But this is kind of what had happened with, with the people there in Jerusalem. A very painful experience. And, and just purely for the physical part, how many of those 10,000 didn't make it the full 500 miles or plus? How many of them were, were suffering, hungry, weary, barely made it if they did and didn't last long once they even got To Babylon. Um, How many uh, of them were separated, perhaps, from their families who were left in Jerusalem at this time? There would be another full exile that would come about 10 years later, but at this one, only 10,000 of the people were taken, so there was undoubtedly family separation that, that had gone on here. And then there's this complex issue of just being plopped down in a foreign land, right? With foreign gods and a foreign language and foreign foods, and as we know, and we studied this in Sunday school this morning, the the Israelite people were a very different kind of folks, and now plopped down in this this environment where it would would have been completely foreign, completely different. They had had their legs pulled right out from underneath them. Everything they knew, everything that they were, was different. Everything that was home to them was gone. But at the same time, the pain of exile would have been so significant spiritually for these people as well. Uh, you remember that, that the land that they were living in, can you put that map up there one more time? I'm sorry. But the, the land that they're living in, currently Jerusalem in this area, was not just any land. There was a special name for this land in the Bible. Does anybody remember? It was the promised land. <laughs> I mean, this was the place where God had led them out of Egyptian slavery and ultimately through all the wanderings and all the challenges and all the wilderness. And and they had landed. They finally had arrived. And so for them, this land was not simply land. It was their identity. It was was this symbol of this relationship that they had with God and and his provision for them. And this was was much more than just a, a place to dwell. It was it was a symbol of their security and their identity. It, just, it was wrapped up so much with, with who they were. And so to be pulled away from that land meant not only physical displacement, but it meant spiritual longing and loss as well. And not only that, this, this temple that they had built in Jerusalem wasn't just, a, wasn't just a building, right? It wasn't just a place where they gathered for worship or they went to pay their offerings. or It wasn't just a place where they came together to have potlucks. I mean, this was a place to the Israelite people that literally housed the very presence of God in their understanding. And so to be pulled away from that meant to be yanked away from the one place where they knew they were in the presence of God. So you can imagine, not only the physical turmoil and the pain that they were experiencing but the spiritual turmoil as well. And I could just kind of begin to think about the questions and the concern that this exile would have been raising in their minds. God, where are you? God, what are you up to? God, what are you doing with us? How long is this going to last? How long can this go on? Have you forgotten us? And how are we going to live here in the meantime? Well, my sense is that my sense is that many of us, if not all of us, here this morning, have some understanding of what it feels like to be in exile. Think about that with me for just a moment. I don't think very many of us, maybe some of us, but not very many of us, by far not the majority, have been plucked up from where we were living and taken somewhere else to live. Some of you have that's happened to you? I know when I went to seminary in Kansas City, I plucked up my wife and made her move to the Midwest. We refer to it as our Midwestern captivity, but we enjoyed it. And uh, no, not a lot of us have experienced that kind of exile, perhaps. But I think we've experienced some different sorts of 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 exilic feelings, perhaps. It's a powerful and 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 familiar metaphor that we can use to speak of our experiences, both in life and as the people of God, really. Uh, Again, we may not have ever been forcibly removed, but but it wouldn't surprise me if, if most of us have felt at one point or another, or perhaps are even feeling right now in the experiences of your life, the same feelings and emotions of despair and confusion and questioning at the people of Israel, and Judah must have felt in those days. In all seriousness, Kyle and I, we've, we've faced a few times like this in our lives and uh, in our life together. One was when her mom passed away when she was in college. when We were both in college. We were dating at the time. And uh, you talk about, you talk about for a 19, 20-year-old gal at the time to have your mom get cancer and to pass away. Uh, and for me, again, 20, 21 years old, I don't know what I'm doing with this stuff. To try to, to see how this kind of an incident can just pull the rug out from everything that you know and everything that you've experienced, right? And, and, and for a, a season, a long season, and still to some extent, I think I could speak for Kyla that we both have feelings of confusion, despair and what's going on here. I, I remember on a lesser scale when I had surgery one time and many of you heard this story and you're tired of it but I, I, had, I had surgery and I had never had on my spleen and I had never had surgery before and this was major abdominal surgery. I was in the hospital for like 10 days and then laid up and couldn't do anything for six weeks and, and I, I was again about 26, 25 years old at the time in the height of my active days and, and this was just a complete I, I injured it playing softball, and I re-injured it water skiing, and so it was kind of a, a sign of the kind of life I was trying to live, and in those, in those moments where I was just completely had nothing, my physicality was, in a sense, stripped from me, taken from me for those eight weeks, I was in exile, in a sense, and I think many of us, again, could identify with this. Maybe, again, I'm not sure what it might be for you. Maybe it was something that came as the consequences of your own choices, or maybe it stemmed from the choices of others or actions of others. Maybe it was a divorce or an addiction or a loss of a loved one, a physical problem, a family crisis. Whatever that might be, you know what it's like to have lost your bearings. You know what it's like to have suddenly woken up one day or through a series of events said, this is completely new territory for me. And, and to be asking yourself the question, what is going on, God? How did I get here? I was just there. Things seem to be okay, and now I'm here. How long is this going to last? Have you forgotten me completely? Are you with me? Do you know me? What is this all about? Everything that we've known is familiar to be ripped from us, left with sense of displacement, of isolation, and abandonment. We know it on a personal level, and i would just say briefly that I think we ought to, if we don't know, we ought to know this on the level as the people of God as well. A, a, a sense of exile should and, and is a very real metaphor, a very real sense or feeling for the church of Jesus Christ in this day. For those who are seeking to align ourselves with the kingdom of God, no doubt we have experienced similar feelings of exile as we try to live in the culture in which we're a part of. Peter, in 1 Peter, he called the people of God. He said, uh, you are aliens and strangers in the world. Jesus, in his priestly prayer to the Father in John 17, he said to the Father, they are not any more a part of this world than I am of this world. The old saying really is true for the followers of Jesus. This world is not my home. And if you have a sense that it is, then you, you need to do some reorientation because it isn't. If you're a follower of Jesus today, and what that means is that you will be in constant conflict and tension with the world in which we're a part. We'll have this sense of being here, but not really being here, and we're in a sense of exile. We're separated. We're isolated. We live in a world that's hostile in many ways to our faith. The worldview, way of life of the dominant culture is not the worldview, is not the way of life of a follower of Jesus. Even, I thought this, in the United States of America, a so-called Christian nation, if we're really holding true to our faith, we will have a sense of being out of place not because we've left but because the sands have shifted right underneath our feet we're in a different place and we may wonder as well if we think personally as we think about as the church where are you god have you forgotten us how long will this go on and what are we supposed to do in the meantime well chapters 27 and 28 are all about conflict. So you'll enjoy reading them, I'm sure. And it's just kind of part of our human nature. Ooh, there's conflict. But the conflict is between Jeremiah and some other prophets, prophets, false prophets who were in Babylon and in Judah who were saying, don't worry about it. This whole exile thing, this whole Babylonian invasion, chill out, no big deal. Just wait a couple of years, maybe. God's going to rise up. He's going to take care of those Babylonians and everything will be back to normal. Just don't worry. Keep doing what you're doing. No big deal. Or just, you know, if you get taken out, well, just hunker down. Just kind of separate, isolate. You'll be back. We'll be back in business within a couple of years at the maximum. And Jeremiah is saying back to them, it is not the case. What you have done, people, is far more consequential than simply a year and a half vacation to the East Coast. This is going to be a long process. There's a lot that you have done that needs to be undone in, this, in the years of exile and the years of separation. So buckle down. So he writes in this letter in, in 29. And that's what we've read this morning. Um, it was to these folks then that in the midst of the great pain of exile, this letter offers to them a great promise of restoration. And those are the two themes I just want you to hold on to this morning. And I don't have time. I, I had to take the time I feel like that I've taken to set it up. I don't have time to fully engage with chapter 29. Um, and I trust that you will do that. But let me just give you a, a couple of quick thoughts about chapter 29, this promise of restoration. This, uh, as, as we read here, wasn't going to be a short period of time. It was going to be a, a, at least seven years. Most scholars think that Jeremiah was just kind of choosing a round number and seven and 70 in scripture are known as kind of complete and fulfilled times. And so most of the scholars just think that Jeremiah was saying when the time is right, 70 years, when the fulfillment of time has come, and knowing that that would be a lot longer than the two years that the other prophets were, were suggesting. But Interestingly, as you look at the history books, it turned out by different counts to be either about 66 years or 73 years, so it wasn't far off. It was going to be this long process, Um, but in the midst of it, he has some great encouragement for the folks, And, and I think it's great encouragement for us folks as we find ourselves in the midst of exile and seasons where the, our, you know, the rug has been pulled out from underneath us. The first one really comes there in those, uh, chat, in those verses, verses five through seven. And you see it there and you, you can kind of see, uh, some of the things that he's talking to them about. And really what he's talking, you know, he talks about building houses and planting gardens and marrying, giving, you know, having children, giving your husband, your children, your sons to get married and your daughters to be married and He's talking about establishing a sustainable communal life in that place. This is shocking. I mean, they had been sent into captivity, and their hope was to get out of it quickly, and instead Jeremiah says, it's going to be a long time, so get comfortable. Settle down. Keep moving ahead. And I think we can pull from it the sense that keep learning Keep growing, keep discovering, keep becoming all that God would have you to become. In other words, don't hunker down, don't isolate, don't withdraw, don't pull into some sort of sectarian world where you're just removing yourself from all society and and, and culture. Engage yourself in the midst of it. I think this has tremendous implications for us when we're going through seasons of exile. What's our tendency? withdraw. That that little period of time when I was recovering from spleen surgery, I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to see anybody. I went to class because I had to. I just was, was withdrawing. And that's our tendency if we're not careful when we're going through seasons like this of exile. The encouragement, I think it's not only healthy for us mentally and emotionally, but obviously spiritually, is to keep pressing forward to keep looking for ways of connecting, to keep doing the things that we know we need to do, believing that in the midst of it, God will be reshaping us and remaking us. But that's not the most radical part of what he asked them to do. The, really the most radical part of what he asked them to do comes in verse 7, where he said, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Do you understand what he's asking them to do and how radical and provocative this would have been? This nation that had dragged them out of their homeland, who who had not shown them by any means any leniency, now God was asking them to pray for this nation, for its prosperity. Now there is a little bit of a note here, it's very honest, the text is very honest with us, it says, because basically as things go well for them, they'll go well for you as well, so that's not a bad idea to pray for them. But there's there's this incredible missional component here that I don't want us to miss. That while we're in exile, and I think this is most significant as we think about the church as being in exile in our world. His encouragement, God through Jeremiah, was for them to to pray for the prosperity, the well-being of that place. And if you're on their page, to pray that way may have even meant that they would too come to know the Lord, their God, as their God. I think, again, our, our tendency, if we're not careful as Christian people in a world in which we feel a sense of displacement or isolation, is to just enhance that, and to pull back and circle the wagons. You know, here we are. We like each other for the most part. And, and we get along, so let's circle the wagons, let's be safe, let's be secure, let's have this church gathering, that church gathering, and if we can, let's just kind of push out the world. Now, is there a healthy sense of distance from the world? Obviously. But can it be such that it, it cuts off our potential witness to the world without a doubt? The challenge, the invitation is to continue in the midst of this place to seek the well-being through our prayer through our giving, through our sharing, through our living of the world around us, believing that as we pray for that, God will bring it about. Well, the last part of the, uh, of the promise of restoration is verse, verses 10 through 14, and in particular, verses 11, or verse 11. But I want you just to be sure and recognize the, the conditionality or the contingency of these verses. No, without a doubt, God says, hey, When that's done, when you've invested yourself, when I've seen this fullness of time come about, when I've watched you reshaped and renewed, and you've had time to come to grips with who you've been and who we are and how we want to move forward, then God says, "I I I will bring you back. I have not forgotten you. If your question is, have you forgotten me? God's answer is, I have not forgotten you. And throughout this process, my only plans for you, God says, are good. I know the plans I have for you, God says. And they're for good. If you're wondering right now what God's plans are for you, they're good. We can be assured of that. But the condition comes through clearly there in verses um, 12 and 13 when he says things like, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me. You will find me. When you seek me with all your heart. So there's this beautiful sense that even in the promise of restoration, God is saying it's not just an automatic. Again, even when I bring you back, when I fulfill the promises, it will be ultimately because there has been a change in our relationship. Because the covenant has been renewed and restored and we're living in a new relationship. He makes all of Himself available to us as we seek Him with all of our hearts. Well, so much more to be said about this, but let me close it with this. Great scholar Walter Brueggemann says it like this. He says, God desires a people fully devoted. And when there is a people so utterly devoted, Life is made newly possible. This is an assertion of the gospel. God is available in the midst of despair and will override both the despair and the circumstances which generate it. God has caused the exile and he will bring them back because God can do a new thing. What new thing do you need God to do? In your life today. Let's pray. God, we recognize today, if we'll stop and think about it, that, that we have absolutely e- experienced in our, in our lives, in the days that we have lived in this earth, we have experienced some of those seasons of exile. We don't know what it felt like for those people in Jerusalem to be dragged from their homeland, necessarily. And, and, both the physical and the spiritual impact of such an exile. And and yet, God, there might be people even right here in this room, listening to my voice, who have have this sense that they are in, in a new place that's not a familiar place, and it's not necessarily a good place by any means. Something has happened, some issue, some situation, some circumstance. Maybe it's recent, or maybe it's a ways back in the past, but it's still holding on, and we're still in that place. And and we like it just to hurry up and get over, but maybe, God, maybe we need to recognize that instead of running away from that exile, maybe if we listen to Jeremiah, maybe the challenge is for us to embrace that season of exile and to see it not as a, a time where, where, where things are going just completely haywire, but to see it as a time perhaps when you want us to continue to press forward and press into our relationship with you to continue to do the things that we know we need to do to please you, and to continue to wait upon you for the fullness of your promise of deliverance in days to come. So God, I pray that you'd speak to us, exiles. I pray that we would hear in the midst of our pain the, the wonder of your promise. And I pray that we would live into all the plans that you have for us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you.